Welcome back to another episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. My name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host. Since the launch of this podcast, I've been asked the same thing. Why are you doing this podcast? And I give everyone the same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a discussion. Today we find ourselves often becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of the conversation. So with that in mind, in mid-2019, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again. With no notes, no questions, I sit down with the subject to learn about them from them. And today's guest is no exception to that. Today, I sit down with 13 Ways CEO Doug Griffiths. For those who might not know what 13 Ways is, 13 Ways Incorporated was founded as a company to facilitate success in building communities people want to live in and can prosper in. Doug, the founder and the chief community builder for 13 Ways, started the company with a passion and commitment to improving the lives of people in small rural communities. Doug and I chat about communities, how they can survive, and how focusing in on one area instead of multiple areas can save shrinking communities. So with that being said, here is Cross-Border Interviews featuring Doug Griffiths. Doug, I want to thank you very much for doing this. Uh, uh, Usually my first uh, thing I would do is offer someone a drink, but as we're 300 kilometers away from each other, uh, I won't be doing that, but uh, I, I, I have to get this out of the way. How are you doing through this whole COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, I'm doing all right. Um, I have sons who are 11 and 14, and and, uh, they're doing schooling now, of course, remotely. And I used to be a junior high teacher, so I'm perfectly primed to make sure they're getting their work done. And they're they're not having probably as much fun as other kids are uh, whose parents aren't quite or exactly how to how to make sure they stay up to date but and my wife still is going to work she works in a clinic and uh, medically necessary so it, it's a little stressful knowing the, the stuff that she goes in and sees and comes home every day but I mean we're we're uh, thoroughly sterilizing everything all the time and staying well and I, and of course I work from home so I'm uh, uh, I'm just not traveling around North America speaking which you know I really I, I forgot now, I sometimes got frustrated with how much I traveled and now I kind of miss heading out once in a while. But, uh, you know, what we're doing as well as can be expected and as well as anybody else, just staying home and stopping the spread. Well, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. I, I guess my first question, I ask this to everyone I talk to, uh, whether it be an author, academics, uh, whether it be politicians, former politicians or entrepreneurs like yourself. Where does your uh, where does your passion to help others come from? Uh, I that's a good question. It's it's always been there. I don't know. I guess I have a bit of a personality for it. I always had empathy for the situation other people were in, and the pain that they were in, and the challenges that they had. And uh, maybe it's because, um, well, not to get too personal, but because I had a lot of it myself. I. When I was younger, a lot younger, uh, I got picked on and bullied and and probably suffered a little bit from um, anxiety. And I, I don't know. I, so every time I, I could feel somebody else was stressed or in pain, I wanted to help. And I, I actually prefer helping people more than just about anything else. I if. Um, even with this business that I do, um, most people that we do the projects for say it's more like a social enterprise. We don't, we don't make a lot of money, but we do try and make the, the communities, um, better. I think building communities is the most important job on earth. So, and um, did your parents instill that upon you as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, they were always helped neighbors and helped friends and, um, um, you know, when whenever anybody was in need, they were one of the first ones there. Growing up in a small town, I think maybe helped too, because I, you know, uh, you'd see at a not just at a funeral with 
with a town of 1200 people where 400 people would show up in empathy and sympathy for what was going on. But I mean, then you go home and my mom would make five days worth of meals for the family while they're going through grieving and 200 people did the same thing. I mean, they'd have a year's worth of food. You just, it, we always were there. That's what being part of a community is. So. I mean, I, I, pro I suppose I couldn't really uh, preach that building communities is the most important job on earth if I didn't participate and have empathy for the people in the communities I'm in. So, and uh, you you participated in a public fashion at, at a young age, at 29, being one of the youngest elected MLAs uh, in the province at the time. In 2002, you ran for a by-election. What was that like? As a 29-year-old, I didn't even know where I was going. So, how did you know that you wanted to get into politics and give back in that sense? Oh, well, let's, let's not make the presumption I knew what I was doing. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I actually, you know, I was in, frankly, every time I've done something like that, it's because I've been in a spot in my life where um, things have been really hard and really challenging. And my, my mom always said to me, when you're facing challenges and you're down, you're depressed, you're frustrated, you're, 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 you're focused on yourself. The best way to get out of that slump is to go help somebody else. And so, um, uh, go do something that's meaningful. And so I, I actually had been married for almost uh, a whole year. <laughs> I was married once before and, and, um, it didn't work out from day one. It just, it was a horrible experience. We were both from different places with different understandings. And so, it, uh, I mean, I, I came home one day and everything was gone. Every single thing in my house. Wow. I had one fork, one spoon, one plate, an old black and white TV and one chair. And I was shocked and surprised and uh, dismayed and depressed. And, and uh, in the meantime, I was a junior high teacher and just kept focusing on what I was doing. And then our, our member of the Legislative Assembly uh, resigned in the middle of the term and or towards the end of the term. I think there was a little over a year left. And I, I thought, I... I, I I want to go help. I want to do something. I had been volunteering in politics for a long time before that. So I, I just, I got up at four in the morning. The constituency was uh, three hours wide and two hours north and south. So I, I went to all of the 32 communities. I'd get up at four in the morning and drive to meet at a coffee shop and then go back into school at seven thirty. And, and after I'd go do the same thing. And and no one thought I was going to win because I was so young. I mean, I was I was 29, but I looked like I was 17. Was it a contested nomination? Oh, yeah. It was one of those um, circumstances where uh, whoever won the nomination was bound to be the MLA. Um, so there were six people that ran for the nomination and only three people that three different parties in the actual proper election because they knew who would win. So it was heavily contested. And um, we came from the least populated region in the corner of the constituency. But um, like I said, I no one thought I would win, but I did. So uh, winning. Uh, must have put you on a different path than you were originally planned for your life. So uh, take me through that aspect of uh, being elected and working with the government of the time, Ralph Klein, to better your community. And how, what did you bring from your background to ensure that how you were raised and how you wanted to help people you did while as an elected MLA? Well, actually, I, I ran... Um not telling people, you know, I'm going to go, you know, be an effective voice and, and I'm going to be a cabinet minister. And, you know, everyone had their pitches. Mine was, uh, I'm going to go advocate for our rural communities. I, I said over and over again in every presentation speech that I did that uh, we had an agriculture policy that helped make the rural regions stronger, but we never really had a rural community policy and we needed one. That's what, that's was the foundation of why I ran. And so I got elected and the very first job I got from the deputy premier was to go write a rural development strategy. And, and for 13 years as an MLA through four terms, uh, every thing I did was focused on community building and especially for our small towns. So um, I, I think that's, that's 
Uh, and I actually resigned so I could go back to community building. Well, and that's an area that I wanted to talk about because I'm not sure if you remember this, but I I actually interviewed you when you resigned. And I remember Richard Starkey actually told me to call you because at that time you had just broken your leg, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. from a skiing um, accident. <laughs> yeah, water skiing. What well, kind of uh, – It frankly um, – it was a wakeboarding accident in BC, and to this day, they have no idea. I shattered my femur. Oh wow! Um, and I don't wakeboard. I don't want anyone to get the impression I was doing any fancy maneuvers. I was—I'd never done it before. And my wife said, no, "My son tried it, my oldest, and was frustrated he couldn't do it, and and said it looks so easy because my my brother-in-law was doing it." And my wife looked at me and said, "Why don't you try it? And then he'll at least realize. Well, if Dad can't do it, it must be hard." <laughs> And so I tried three times. I couldn't get up. And and my uh, nephew said, try one more time. And somehow I was pulling and boom, I just felt something felt like it smashed into my leg. And everyone laughs and jokes that Ogopogo gave me a head bump, but shattered about uh, two, three inches of my femur and cracked it from the knee to the hip. And they put a titanium rod in. And that was in July. And then I didn't resign until January, but I I knew I wasn't. I, I knew in my the caucus meeting in um, November, I was finally out of the wheelchair and I was on crutches and then a cane and, and uh, went into the caucus meeting and it was the same caucus meeting when the wild rose party was invited to come in and they were going to join and i thought i i gotta go (laughs) and i told the premier i was leaving and i didn't resign until january officially because he they asked me not to just till they could get organized but i had literally said i will not be in the next caucus meeting and that was at the end of january so i resigned two days before wow um going back to your time as uh mla uh you were appointed minister of municipal affairs uh i i think that's a uh a happy uh appointment for you because of your uh activities now uh what was that process like of being appointed uh, minister of municipal affairs especially Uh, from a rural community rural riding i should say well you know what it was interesting because i had run for to be a premier and lost um and so the person who won uh, appointed me to be minister of municipal affairs because of my focus on communities and i'll still um the, the very first phone call summed it up to me it was an interview and they said so uh now that you're minister of municipal affairs you're going to implement everything you wrote in your book and i wrote a book 13 ways to kill your community and i thought you have not read the book because i didn't have you know um a list of of just this is the prescription to make things go away. And I, I use that phrase a lot. We're sort of in a world now where we we don't feel well and we go get a prescription and it goes away. And even with our our, our communities, our rural communities and their economic strategies, their, their economic plans, their shrinking uh, populations, their shrinking main streets, their deteriorating infrastructure, they think there's just some prescription to make it all better. And it's not. Every community needs to take ownership and decide what's going to make them unique. So I faced a, a, a bit of a challenge because everyone thought, oh, this is the this is the community guy. He's going to solve it all for us. And yet the very first um, line I wrote in the rural development strategy I wrote for the province and what I said in the book is that the province can't fix it for you. We can be there to help, but you have to decide you want to do something to make your community successful. And it means evolving and realizing that things are changing and, and being prepared to adapt otherwise you die and and that's a jumping off point of the reason why I wanted to talk to you because uh, I, I'm sitting down with mayors Reeves councillors from across Alberta and actually around the country right now because I'm speaking to two councillors from Ontario in the next two weeks um what is the biggest obstacle facing commun- smaller communities and even urban communities today in your opinion oh you know what I- I'm glad you asked that question because they're all facing obstacles. There was just a great column uh, earlier this week or last week uh, in the New York Times about how uh, people are moving out of New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles, but they're also moving out of small towns. Where are they going and why? Um, And I think the biggest uh, challenge that communities are facing is the failure in their ability to realize what's coming and how the world is changing. They, they still try and do things the way they did 30 years ago. 
and it's it's not going to work it's not what millennials are looking for it's not what uh, generation z is looking for the older ones that are entering the economy and and looking at homes and stuff it's not even what what mine and your generation want necessarily anymore because we've evolved from what we were expected we were supposed to uh, life was going to be like when we were in our 20s to what it's really like when we're in our 40s and what we really want to spend the next um 30 years god willing um doing so uh, i mean there w- without changing that mindset there are uh most communities around North America think their path to growth is to build a new subdivision. So they're building these traditional homes with three or four bedrooms and two or three bathrooms and a two car garage in a subdivision. Now that's about housing. That's not about community and that's not about neighborhoods. But what people want more and more is to be part of a a real community, especially when the next generation doesn't doesn't work nearly as much in an office as they used to. They work online, like we're we're doing right now. So when you spend forty hours a week working online, looking at a computer screen, you don't want a cocoon in the basement or in the backyard. You want a front porch and you want a main street and you want to go to the yoga studio and a craft beer market and a, a coffee shop that's really a, a third place. To- Yet we're not building neighborhoods, we're still building subdivisions. And and the ones, the communities that are, are growing and prospering are focusing on building neighborhoods. That's why those people are moving from super small towns and super big cities into places like Boise, Idaho, where they can get all of the services they want, but they're not in a giant city and they're not in a small town. They're in a real authentic community and real neighborhoods. So um, without giving up, uh, too much details, because I know it's in the book, um, how do you build a neighborhood? How would you build a neighborhood? Is it because in your book you talk about um, how we need to focus on seniors, how uh, kids, uh, youth is an area that we have to focus on as well, but also uh, diversifying the economy as well without attracting businesses because it could kill your community. So how would you build a neighborhood as someone who is a uh, advocate for communities? How would you build a neighborhood? Well, when when the communities we work in now that uh, that bring us into contract, we we go in and we do an assessment, and I most of them um, they have their downtown is suffering their downtown businesses, and the reason why they're suffering is because they're still focused on attracting businesses that are commodity based and right? buying jeans, but you can buy jeans online, and most of the next generation does. So, um, what? Again, 30 years ago, somehow we got this this mindset that downtown was about businesses, and yet it was always about socialization. Businesses located there because of the socialization. So 30 years ago, I mean, in a business on the main floor and people lived on the second floor above the business. And so there were vehicles on Main Street. There were people downtown. After work closed, even at five o'clock, the restaurants are still open because there were people there and you'd go down and you'd eat and people would socialize. And then we built these subdivisions and people moved out to the subdivisions. And at five o'clock, they're like, well, I don't want to go back into town to eat. So nobody went. Restaurants closed. Nobody lives downtown. The main streets are vacant. So if you if you want to start to rebuild your community, build a neighborhood, start with the downtown core and reintroduce housing and focus on businesses that are around socialization and services. So you get action and activity that makes the businesses that are there more viable, but it brings people back downtown. And that that's the very first neighborhood you should focus on is your downtown core. So, but, okay, I understand that, but how do you attract businesses without telling businesses not to come? Because if you say we're friendly, we're business friendly community, we want uh, businesses to come to our downtown core. If four pizza shops uh, open up in the downtown core, you can't stop that, right? So how do you diversify your economy while trying to make that neighborhood? Because if you're saying we need to make sure that youth have their, uh, uh, they can buy their jeans online. If a jeans store wants to open up in my downtown core in a small rural uh, neighborhood, why stop that? Why why would we be looking at uh, not diversifying our economy and not being the heavy-handed government and saying no you can't come in. We want to we only want these type of shops. 
No, I, I think you're sorry, Chris. I think maybe I didn't clarify enough because okay. I'm not saying stop them from coming in. Okay. Absolutely. If they want to come in, uh, that's the entrepreneurial spirit. Let them make a go of it. Yeah. Except our, Actively, when we're trying to build a community, I mean, you can Google it online. There's a there's great resources that are the top 80 businesses every community should have <laughs> that everyone needs. We we um, we we still think that our downtowns need to be commodity based, and and if anything, it's not about preventing a pizza shops from opening. It's it's about also having you know a dental office and a yoga studio and more diversity down there we actually there are some uh, um, communities that have bylaws that prevent those those um, services and social businesses from opening on main street and that needs to stop you need a diversity of businesses to make it a full community so no and you know what actually uh we worked in one community they they uh they have three brew pubs on main street and I mean, it's a decent sized community. And they said, you know what? We're going to pass a bylaw that no more brew pubs are allowed on Main Street. And I said, why would you do that? And they said, well, because it's going to make them all unviable and they all go broke. And I, all I do is look at them and smile and say, yeah, that's what they did in Nashville. They said only three live music pubs. That's that's all we're going to be able to accept. No, are you kidding? You should. If there's 10 on there, it becomes a, a, a focal point and people will come to do a brew pub tour They're like, Why would you stop it? What you need is more social activity related businesses on Main Street and housing people down so how do you build housing when there's already established buildings there because in the community that i work for it's a small northern community uh it uh it has an established storefront in the downtown core there is not a residential area in the downtown core so how do you do that how do you make that transition do you and with the times that we're in right now developers are not coming to the rural communities they're staying into the urban centers so how do you attract developers to the smaller communities to make it viable to make the downtown core more house uh, have more housing oh this is this that's a, such a great question and there's so much that can be done uh we were in a smaller community in north dakota and they had the same question what do we do so they they redesigned main street to big more curb outs and wider sidewalks and they focused on bringing activities downtown so that there were constantly people there and the next thing you knew because they had a few vacant places on main street the next thing that happened was that a, a developer from chicago came up and bought three of those vacant buildings and built a five-story the, the main floor was commercial um, businesses um, the next floor was offices and the top three floors are residential with some with some green space actually built in on the fourth floor in an open roof concept and it was sold out before they finished building it and the reason why was because there was more activity downtown and there was the opportunity for investment but it doesn't have to be right on main street it can be one block off we we worked in another community that is still considering how they're going to move forward because we just finished with them. But um, they have these these backyards off of Main Street that are twice as wide as Main Street. There's room to, to subfill in housing and they're considering doing it, but they have the same problem. They're outside of a city of about 100, 120,000 people and they're thinking people want to move out of there, but but we're not sure if we can get developers there. So what they're they're going to do, because here in Alberta, um, actually, uh, it was probably the last initiative I did as a as a minister of municipal affairs um, with uh, the rest of cabinet was change legislation so that a municipality could they had, they could own a corporation that was uh, utility focused, so deliver garbage pickup or water or sewer or um, power. Um, but now they have the ability to create a development corporation where they can actually build up equity partner with private developers. And their notion is that developers aren't probably going to come here and do it themselves yet. But if we're not going to own it and take responsibility and start the initiative, why would they have faith in us if we don't have faith in ourselves? So they're going to create a development corporation, buy up some of that vacant space, and then partner with the private sector. And they're maybe like a brew pub. Um, and it could generate revenue for that that uh, municipal corporation, which can pay dividends to the municipality. But, but it also leads to... to improve tax revenue for the community because there's new businesses on Main Street, new housing on Main Street. So there are tools in the toolbox to do that. 
Okay, in, in, in a perfect world, that would be great. But we have hundreds of communities across uh, Alberta. In rural, uh, We have hundreds of rural communities across Alberta, thousands if possible, and around the world. How do you stand out, though? How do you stand out for developers to say, you know what? This is the community I want to actually uh, build in. I, this is the community. Because you look at municipalities across, they are all vying for the exact same thing right now. That's that's exactly the problem. They're all vying for the same thing. I mean, we did um, research starting on the West Coast across North America and stopped at about the um, Manitoba borderline all the way down through Texas. And um, we stopped because 54% of the communities, 54%, one out of every two, had a slogan that said something like the best place to work, live, and raise a family. Well, yay for competition. That's like Apple saying, hey, our phone is great. And Microsoft saying our phone was great too. And Google saying our phone's great. And Samsung, yay. It's what differentiates you that makes you better. And saying you're the best place to work, live and raise a family is a lie. There isn't a community in the world that is perfect. What what makes your community grow is finding out what makes you unique. And every single community has some unique offering. Now, I know what you're going to say, but there are still now in Alberta, 349 communities. How do they all differentiate themselves? Don't worry. 200, 300 of them aren't going to to bother with the the energy it requires or the investment it requires to find that. It's like saying, well, what if every company in the world made a cell phone? <laughs> Don't worry about it. To be a handful that are going to take the initiative, and I guarantee you every single one of those can find some way to make themselves unique. So, And in fact, every single client we've worked with, we've found something that makes them unique and competitive. And usually the council and the chamber of commerce and the economic development officers and authority are all saying, oh, wow, we do have a value proposition to differentiate us from everybody else. Is that the biggest obstacle that communities have to overcome right now to attract businesses, to attract the builders to come to their community? Because when I speak to municipalities and I've spoken to mayors, their biggest thing is how do we make uh, our town more business friendly? How do we open up our land use bylaw to ensure that uh, businesses can come in and develop no matter what they are, no matter what they want? We want them to come here. So we will give the we will roll out the red carpet for them to let them come in. Is it actually more branding yourself to attract it and not just giving away the kitchen sink to attract them. Definitely. I mean, giving away the kitchen sink. Look, let's back up for a second. I think that communities, uh, whenever we write a a project, uh, work on a project, I tell communities, uh, I don't use the phrase what for their community because it's not a thing to me. I use who because I think a community has a personality and uniqueness just like every single individual does. And every single individual finds their own path. And I think every community needs to do that too. But you would never advise a person to say, hey, your resume should say nothing about who you are, nothing about what you've done, nothing about where you're going, nothing about what you're interested in. Just, Just throw it up on the wall and see who hires you. Uh, that's not a good strategy. You you need to determine your own path and decide you what you want to be. And then because then you say yes to the right things and you say no to the things that don't fit with you. And communities are the same way. Right now they're they're basically saying we're open for anything god please come here. And and if I was in business and looking at that I'd say no thanks. Uh, you have no idea where you're going or what you're going to do. This week you're happy I open a a business and next week you're like Ah, damn, you're located by the wrong one. We got to do something. It's chaos. But if a community says, you know what, we're trying to design a main street that's about social experiences. So we want a a farmer's market every Saturday. We want strong, locally produced food, not just agriculture, but locally produced food to draw in that market. We're going to have entertainment on Saturday night on main street. And we want more bars and more brew pubs and more restaurants. And that's where we're going to start. We're not we're not worried about the housing right now. We're not worried. That's where we're going to start because we are 20 minutes from a major city. And we think we can have we're even going to invest what we have into buses to bring people out here because we want to be the you know, do something unique. And this is going to draw money into the community. And you know what? 
great. Then then I'll look and say, well, then I'll invest in a brew pub instead of, you know, this you, you got to quit trying to be everything and be something on purpose. And then you'll find the right partners. It's like, uh, sorry, I get really passionate about this. <laughs> Which is so. good because that's it's good because if you were just saying one word uh, responses to me, it would not be a good podcast. So this is perfect. No. I have I have um, you know farmers and ranchers, agricultural producers say, you know what, Doug, we we, we can't get into China. It's we're having a really tough time getting our product in there, and I tell them the reason why is because this requires federal to federal government negotiations about how much wheat is going to get into the country. Why not? look at what unique products you might make and there was there was one place i mean they they have a small local guy that grinds red fife wheat into flour it's a very rare wheat and it is the perfect wheat it's what they used to use for flour it's sweeter um and it's all organic i said what if you just found one other community where that wants that red fife wheat in china you know what that's where you're going to grow and you're trying to do everything and you just need to start with one thing really well okay for instance okay so for instance i mean lancaster pennsylvania anyone go look it up i know lancaster quite well do you i've been to lancaster pennsylvania (laughs) really oh you know what i had a i was in ontario speaking and there was a lady who was originally from there and i said lancaster pennsylvania because that's the way you pronounce it burt lancaster right yep. and she looked at me and said no it's lancaster do you mind me asking uh, what uh community you were talking to or do you remember where she was like what community she was from uh it was outside of uh windsor okay then never uh, mind just because the the family that i knew I'd, from lancaster yeah. was uh uh from coburg area in ontario so that's why i was <laughs> small world if it was the same person yeah no oh well that maybe i'll have to look it up i, I mean i speak all over north america so but, but anyway it, your story it, about so, lancaster Lanc- lancaster yeah <laughs> lancaster it's uh so they the, the story to sum it up really short and of course there's going to be some nuances i miss but essentially they're in the rust belt and they lost a significant um part of their industry with the rust belt right i mean it's hard pressed no um steel manufacturing it was on the decline so what happened is that all the young people left because there were no traditional jobs in those plants and factories and so their population declined and their economy shrunk they sat around and said what are we going to do and I, I like it because um in emergency situations i always tell people work the problem just don't try and fix everything just fix one thing and they said well we've got a seniors population because of course they're not looking for jobs so let's focus on them so they focused on you know housability uh, housing affordability jobs quality of life Uh, there were six indices that they used to focus on uh, and um, did things like um, instead of bike paths they had go golf cart paths so that seniors could move around they they took some of the unemployed young people in their schools and they they created a bit of a program to partner them up so that grocery stores could deliver groceries excuse me to those seniors um i think it was one of the first you know um grocery store pickup uh, initiatives in north america they did things to help seniors they enhanced their pickleball courts i think they were one of the first places that said pickleball is a big thing and seniors uh, loved it. They felt like they were being serviced and catered to and that their interests were important and their needs were being met. And that was it. I mean, they didn't market it or advertise it. They didn't anticipate seniors would move there for it. They just thought, let's focus on what we can control. And they actually had some pushback from people that said, oh, you don't care about young people. You don't care about entrepreneurs. You don't care about, about young families. And they got chastised for it. But what happened was that those seniors who were happy in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, went other places in the winter, like like Arizona and Florida and California for the warm, the, the cold months to stay warm. And they bragged about Lancaster, Pennsylvania and the quality of life that was there and what the community did. And to, to other seniors who said, well, why the hell do we live where we are? Because they don't give a damn about us. And in the summer months, they would move to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Their population went up, young people moved. And now if you want to build any kind of seniors housing, go to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, because every type of development and every uh, major seniors housing builder 
is in Lancaster. Their main street's been improved. They beautified it. And now they have one of the fastest growing young professional associations in the Midwest, uh, in the Rust Belt, because young people are moving back because there's money to be made with a growing seniors population, new development. And so so that's why I tell people, focus on one thing and do it really well. Don't be everything. So uh, by that that logic, uh, by what you've just said, it sounds like you're advocating to focus more on seniors than uh, youth because more rural communities right now are... uh, are dwindling. Their population sizes are uh, shrinking because more families are moving away to the large urban centers. Uh, like they said, the one community up north, their biggest uh, uh, issue is resident uh, retention and keeping them here. Um, in your book, uh, do you talk about how do you keep the young family, the youth of the community that in the small rural communities and also keep the seniors there? Because seniors will want to stay where they were born, where they were raised, so they will want to stay in their home community, where more youth will want to leave. So how do you retain the youth to make sure they come back after schooling? Yeah, yeah, that's the key difference is you, you don't try and retain them and keep them, um, but, but give them a reason to come home after. And and don't even just give them a reason to come home after. Um Give a reason for any youth to move there. I mean, again, I'm going to go back to the subdivisions. It's a challenge because most of these communities want to build a subdivision, and whether they get a developer or not, they build the subdivision with a, you know, three bedroom, two bathroom, two car garage in the subdivision. Well, those young people, um, they go off, they go to school. If they want to come home, where are they going to live? Most of don't want a bedroom, two bathroom, two car garage. And if they do, they, they can't afford it anyway. So then while well, they're gone, still um, developing skills, getting educated, they meet someone. They meet someone and then they settle down and and they do find a job, but they're still just getting started. So they can't afford the three bedroom, two bathroom, two car garage. So they pick a community, uh, you know, a suburb in outside some urban center or some where they can afford the housing or there's something different where they live downtown in a two bedroom condo. And then they get established and settled. Why would they move back to your town? Well, unless they're an entrepreneur, I'm going to start a business. Well, that too. There's no housing. Sorry, you're cutting out. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. No, well, and that's. I'm a big advocate for building up instead of out. I, I think apartment buildings will attract more people who can't afford the three bedroom, two bathroom garage house because right now house prices are still going up, even though the economy is not doing well. So. Do re- do communities have to look at alternative housing to attract residents and keep youth here as well? Hell yes. <laughs> they need a diversity of housing. And it's not just for young people. It's for, you know, seniors that don't want to do house maintenance and mow the lawn and shovel the snow anymore. And they're looking for something a little more, you know, two bedroom condo that they can they can, uh, you know, lock the door and it's still safe and secure when they go somewhere else for three months or four months. They, you, you don't get a diversified economy and a diversified population without diversified housing. So we need to diversify fire housing and even where we locate it so we also um go ahead we we also like and i i if someone listens to this they might be upset but there's a there's a community a region that had this program called uh, return to rural and you know it, it, it's noble and it was really good when it started except it um it's got two challenges now the notion that in order to live in a community in in a rural area to go back to your small town you have to be from there right it's returned to rural when there are lots of people who would like to live in a neighborhood in the community that aren't from there okay one and two it's sort of of the mindset i mean they're working their whole plan was if we could just get one out of every 10 to come back that is not a growth strategy that is a slow death strategy what what you What you should be communicating, and and it's why I tell people not to use these words, don't use rural, don't use small town feel, and don't use agriculture. Because rural gives the impression that, you know, you're next door to smelly cows, which 
isn't the case, right? But but you're think about it. You're communicating to people who live in urban centers who want real community. So you say a small town feel. Well, to lots of them, the small town feel sounds like yeah, there's a barren main street and and there's no no businesses, none of the stuff that I want. When there are a lot of amenities and services small communities have that that most people in larger centers aren't aware of, right? They just presume there's nothing there. So when you say small town feel, all you're selling is that everyone knows everybody else, and there's not you know traffic volumes at eight, eight and four. But you're not telling them what you have. You're telling them what you don't. Um, and same with agriculture. I mean, there's an entire generation that when we use the word agriculture, we give them the impression that, you know, it's it's hard, backbreaking labor and you have to be a big, strong guy to do it. And it's laborious and it's taxing and it's dirty. <laughs> Um, we should be talking about food production, which, which you know, in this day and age is not a backbreaking enterprise. You need a technology degree, a marketing degree, an engineering degree, an agriculture degree, and an economics degree, because it is so. Uh, it's one of the most complex and international businesses you can do. We use old language that worked really well in the 30s and and sell something that people aren't buying. So I tell people instead, use the phrase neighborhood instead of small town feel. There are neighborhoods in every region and neighborhood says you belong and that there's stuff there you can you can live in that neighborhood almost independent of everything else. Use instead of rural, say community because what, what <laughs> I mean, it's all in the marketing. And instead of agriculture, use use food production because it's it's a different mindset. And our language determines how we think about things. So if we're going to be successful in communities, we need to change our language. The biggest concern that I hear from the Reeves that I talk to and the counselors that I talk to is um, it worked so well 20 years ago. So we should just bring it back and try it again. With everything going on in the world right now, with oil prices slumping, with the economy slowing down, that's not working. What happened, what worked in the 90s and 80s is not going to work in 2020, 2010. So how do you, as a, a speaker, as an author, as an advocate for communities, try to convince uh, counselors, Reeves, uh, economic development officers to stop thinking in the past and start thinking in the future? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. That is because I, I, I want to clarify right now that that what worked in the you know in the eighties and the nineties and even in, up to two thousand ten isn't working now, and it was never going to, despite the price of oil. In fact, um, you know, major events have caused changes in society that have become permanent. World War Two uh, meant men went off to war primarily, and women had to go work in the factories. And then women realized, hey, this isn't men's work. This is anybody's work, and I could do this. Ta-da. Thank God that changed, yeah. and it became permanent. This pandemic is not changing the world, though. This pandemic is speeding up the changes that were inevitable. People are realizing how important it is to be part of a community for our security and our safety, but they're also learning the value of going online so you can buy anything anywhere. But but now we need our communities to layer both, uh, be online and um, have an authentic community because otherwise they go online. We told businesses all the time, you need to have a presence online and make people know you're there. Well, now when you can't go out and you can't go into a store to shop, you go online and you find Amazon. You should have been online already and had people know you were there, but at least now you know. Yeah. So this crisis is forcing them to think differently. But honestly, I the best I could do, um, I created a presentation called Everything's About to Change, and it's the foundation for the, the next book, uh, which is called The Re-Rise of Rural America. Um, and it's, it's really about how economics, demographics, technology um, values are all shifting and the opportunity for communities to capitalize on those. So I do the presentations all over North America about about 40 percent, I would say, four out of 10 communities say, I like that. Um, I, tell us more. So we do a call and then they go, whoa, 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 whoa. That means I have to change. And about maybe one in 10 are willing to step forward. I, I don't spend a lot of time um, trying to convince the other nine out of 10 communities to change because if they don't see it, 
I, I, I don't know that there's anything I could do to make them. You can't, they have to want to adapt. So, uh, and I'm busy enough with the one out of 10 that wants to be prepared for the future. So, so, um, one of the big things that I look for when I move to a community, I, I did it when I moved to Lloydminster, I did it when I moved to Slave Lake, uh, was I looked at their online presence. And uh, in the last five, six years, the online presence of Facebook has been prominent in communities across this country, and I'm assuming around the world. But in the smaller rural communities, every single one of them, it seems, has a community discussion page, which is moder- moderated by residents. And it is a and I'm not a big fan of social media. I have to use it, but I'm not a fan of it. I will say that the uh, the the pool of disgusting comments that I read on Facebook on those discussion pages can deter people from moving. How do you attract people, but also ensure that they don't look at that those Facebook pages? Because I'm I I will be the first to admit I had an option to move to Lloydminster in another community, which I will not say where, but I chose Lloydminster because their uh, online presence was a little bit more friendlier than the other community. So how do you how does a, how do communities, especially rural communities, stop those without trying to hammer free speech? <laughs> Uh, I don't, I don't know that you can. I mean, look, uh, that the they have those Facebook. What are they? Darts and diamonds, and they have some sort of like praise and criticism. And, yeah. And most of them are cesspools of negativity and criticism. And and uh, we were in one community. I swear, it was the most negative place I have ever been in my life. You couldn't say a positive thing without a hundred people piling on and being critical. And so we went in there to do a, a strategic economic plan for them. And and then we had the town hall where we, we presented what, what made them unique and where they were going to go. And it was so critical. And I knew it was going to be critical. So I, I told council, you don't say anything. I'm going to take all of the criticism. But it was um, – it was a straight hour of nothing but anger and you know well she did something in 1922 and it's like does that matter for your future and it took an hour before they all sat down the negative folks and there were you know normally there are about three percent of the population in this case they were about 30 percent and and then they they started to talk more positively and then they left and i mean the negativity swelled back up you, you can't. A, a community, my point is a community needs to realize, uh, people need to realize that if a community is negative and, and self-infecting, um, there's not a lot you can do to change it. There's a lot you can do to prevent it from building, which is, I mean, we teach communication strategies um, that are focused on inoculating people against the negativity. It's like a, a like a vaccine, but you have to, to deliberately get ahead of it. You can't wait until the criticism piles up or just keeps piling up and pretty soon people are bitter and angry and nothing will get be good and it's too late. Um, but you can work on on meaningful communication that inoculates people against that negativity. But once it's done, once it's like that, I, I if I, like you said, avoid the place. I wouldn't encourage anyone to invest there. And, and as the irony is that anyone who hears this will say, well, you're just saying my communities in give up on it. Uh, it's not me that gave up on it. It's the people that are continuously negative that are creating the, the mindset. And it's because they've already given up. It's up to them to decide they want to change their mind or, or not, not anybody else's. That's a good point. Um, the one last area I want to talk about before we wrap up here is cooperation. Uh, it is a key part of your book. Um, do you advocate for more uh, regional government style? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the you know it was probably the the my biggest challenge when I was minister of municipal affairs and the biggest criticism I got uh, because uh, a lot of municipalities. <laughs> I don't care if they're mad. I've said it before. They the municipality operates in a way where those elected officials or the CAO or administration, um, it becomes their job and their life, and they don't want to cooperate because it means giving up some authority and some responsibility. And so they build this up like it's some their municipality, some sort of little kingdom or fiefdom. They're meant to defend against the enemy, and and really it's about um, protecting their own job or their own egos, and yet. 
most communities all across North America don't have the money to invest in marketing. They don't have the money to invest in proper strategic planning. They don't have the money to invest in redoing their downtown or to create a corporation or to build the housing or to do all the things they need. So they, and if, yet if they pull together um, all these independent communities, uh, they're not going to lose their own identity. In fact, what makes them unique in a region is what makes the whole region more competitive. I mean, in the in the Edmonton capital region, all the the Sherwood Park and the Strathcona County and the the St. Albert and the Fort Saskatchewan's and the Ladukes and everyone, every community is different. And when they partner together and attract businesses and the industry and people to the region, they'll move to different communities. But it's their the the power of the region together that makes it competitive and still allows each community to be independent and unique and so it works but here we have you know a lot of communities that have no resources to do anything and they're dying one of the biggest success stories I had when I was a minister was uh, a community that was no longer viable and they finally agreed to dissolve they had been fighting the with the county forever, the two hated each other. When they finally dissolved and they became part of the county, um, and I mean the citizens in the in the county and the village refused to work together. When that village finally dissolved and became a hamlet and they became one municipal entity, suddenly they started working together and there's a new subdivision going in built by a developer who showed up and said, this is a great community. But when you were fighting, there was no hope. So, I, I mean, we've got to break down these barriers. The enemy, in fact, I have a presentation called I've Seen the Enemy and it's my mom because I was at a presentation with a for a county and a town about working together for economic growth and marketing strategies. And a guy from the county stood up and said, I will not work with people from town who want more money so they can build more sidewalks and they can build more lights and they can support their swimming pool. Uh, they're the enemy, Doug. They are not our friends. And another guy from the town stood up and pointed at him and said, but doesn't your mom live in town? <laughs> so I've seen the enemy and it's my mom. So what about cooperations between t- uh, municipalities, communities uh, and First Nations, uh, especially Especially in the north, that is a big uh, area where there's a lot of First Nations communities and there's a lot of uh, communities. How do you advocate to work with that? Is it the same as working with anyone else or is there a little bit more different? Because uh, First Nations, they want to honor their history. They want to honor their traditions. So how do communities work with that by honoring their traditions and their uh, past? Yeah, I um, I don't think it's any different. Um, it, it takes... A, a better understanding but look you've got two communities that decide they want to work together they each have a unique competitive advantage and it's the complement that makes them stronger together it's the same with with indigenous communities of all stripes they have a very unique history and a unique way of uh, approaching the environment and economics in the world that that is a is a competitive advantage where partnering together can enhance both partners or three partners or four partners. Um, so approaching it is just one of mutual respect, just like you would any other group. Understanding what makes them unique and approaching it in a way that that what makes them unique is a strength they have that can enhance your strengths. You can complement each other. So, I mean, a lot of us don't necessarily know how to approach it, uh, I would suggest you just approach it like you would any other group, mutual respect and understanding and find ways that you're, you can maintain your uniqueness and grow and be stronger together. And our indigenous communities are incredible uh, for the, the, the perspectives that they bring to our community. There is a lot that our world needs right now from them. Uh, and I, I encourage the partnerships. I, I actually don't think um, we'll find nearly as much success without partnering with our indigenous communities. So um, last set of questions is around where did this idea come from for you? Mm. Where did 13 ways come from? <laughs> so should have been the first question, but <laughs> no, no, no. It's funny. I wrote that rural development strategy and got frustrated with traveling and telling communities all the things they needed to do to be successful and having and sitting there watching them do things that was the opposite of what they needed to do. So they'd say, yes, Doug, we want to attract young people. But they'd sit around right in the middle of the conversation about attracting young people and say things like, well, there's no hope here. You got to move to the city if you want success. Young people can't make a go of it here. 
I stop being so negative. So I just, I wrote a quick list of 10 things on my way to do a presentation and did a 20 minute presentation on what I, where I thought communities were sabotaging their success. And then I came up with more ideas and then, you know, continued to add. And I think I got to 16 ways to kill your community. And some of them got put together and eventually it landed on 13. And one day somebody looked at me and went, Ooh, that's 13 ways to kill your community. 13 is an unlucky number. That's perfect. Great marketing. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's what I planned. Well, I thought it was because you were an MLA for 13 years. That's why you came up with it. So that's my thought. Well, I'm not a I'm not a, a numerologist, but uh, you know, but ironically, 13 has always been uh, a number in our family. My birthday's on the 26th. My wife's birthday's on the 26th. Our first house together was number 26. Um, that's two. I I I did have 13 years as an MLA. It just happened to work when there was the floor crossing that it was 13 years. It was, um, you know, almost like it was fated to be. So the, the first book, 13 ways to kill your community came out in 2010 before I retired, um, from politics. So, and I didn't retire because it was 13 years. It was just the right time to go. It just seems to be a number that works into our lives. And now, um, you did mention it beforehand. I, I didn't realize this, but you are writing a second book now. Yeah. When can we yeah. expect it on the bookshelves? Oh, it'll probably be another year. Um, I have some uh, U.S. Uh, publishers that are interested in it, and I, I prefer to self-publish, but you know, they keep saying they're going to make me an offer. I can't refuse. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. But um, and then of course they have a process. I have to finish writing it. Um, so the book is actually called Renaissance or Revolution. And revolution is crossed out, and then it's uh, um, the re-rise of rural America. And the reason why is because I think there's um, the difference in rural communities around North America is between to revolution. A lot want a revolution, which is about getting angry and taking something back, you know, going back to the 80s, going back to the 90s, bringing back coal. Yay, this is what we're going to do. Except the world's evolving and your success isn't going to come from a revolution because nothing was stolen from you. It's just changing. And renaissance is about an enlightenment and a new opportunity and a golden age. And I think that's what's coming to rural communities if they want to embrace the change and take advantage of the new opportunities. So, um, Running through their book processing, I'm assuming it's probably a, a year before it comes out. But there's sub columns and and uh, the presentation I do that people can access if they want to see what what's coming. And they can buy your uh, your current book where? Uh, everywhere, uh, Amazon. Amazon um, will sell it to you, but they're. I will say it will take five weeks to get to you because right now I ordered your book two weeks ago and I still haven't gotten it. <laughs> Oh, well, you know what? They have a their their policy is that they will order a bunch of books and then they will sell them, and then they'll they'll order twenty and they'll send you back ten the next month, and then order thirty more. And they're so confusing, and you wind up. I mean, they want their money back if they don't sell them. While well, they're ordering more, they're a monstrosity to deal with. So I I told them you buy them at cash and you keep them or don't, and so they refuse to do it. So I tell everyone on our website you can buy them, and I'll even autograph them and sign them if you. Uh, want and get them to you if if uh, you want just uh, drop me your email after and I'll send you a couple for sure that's great um, Doug I want to thank you very much for doing this greatly appreciate it I'm more enlightened uh, I, uh, I I have more questions that I'll be able to ask uh, municipalities when I talk to their mayors their reeves and their counselors now so thank you very much for doing this well thank you Chris this is one of the best interviews I've ever had because we really got into some meat and potatoes and I love being challenged it's uh it's great I community building is the most important job on earth because if we have strong communities we have successful leadership and profitable businesses and families can take care of themselves and each other so thanks for covering this subject okay you just you just enlightened me on a new question do you think we have strong communities right now uh i think we have some um the ones that you talk to are they strong or are they trying to be strong but not getting there um, like I said before, um, 
they want to be strong. Um, the question is whether or not they're willing to make the commitment and be different um, and, and do something. Because it's not it's not for the faint of heart. It's not an easy uh, fix, and it is not a prescriptive fix either. It's not like, hey, just tell me what I need to do, and and I'll do it. You know, anyone who puts people do it all the time. The five steps to building a successful community. It's like come on it's more complex than that and that's that's not going to to deal with finding what makes you unique and 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 creating that value proposition that's going to track people business and industry so it takes work it takes time it's also not going to happen overnight i mean it's not like oh some federal program comes along and communities will be successful if you think this is going to happen overnight you're wrong so it takes time it takes uh, energy it takes commitment it takes ingenuity and it takes a desire to be successful and to suffer through failures and there aren't you know as many communities willing to do that as i would like but i continue to hope we'll get there that's a perfect spot to leave it at thank you very much doug for doing this greatly appreciate it have yourself an excellent rest of the day and enjoy your weekend and enjoy the treadmill (laughs) (laughs) thanks chris stay safe and uh, stay well And once again, thank you to our guests for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week. Mm-hmm.